Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Isaiah 29. Turn there. Of the many things you may want in life, what you do not want is a God who changes his mind. I am flummoxed by the theologies out there that say that God could make all these very specific promises to these very specific people and can say, this people group, that's who I'm talking about. I'm going to name them by name and even say who their forefathers are. These are the descendants of the people that I've made promises to from the very beginning. Specific people and then specific promises. This land, identifiable land, we know where this land is. It's the land that surrounds Jerusalem, the place where God has chosen to place his name. So God can make very specific promises to very specific people and then change his mind and then say, nope, uh, that's, I didn't mean those people and I didn't mean that land. I really meant Christians someday going to heaven. That's what I was really talking about. That is the theology that confuses me and confounds me because I think you have seen as we've been going through Isaiah, just like when we went through Ezekiel, just like when we went through all the minor prophets, they all tell the same story which is that God, despite the fact that Israel has been rebellious, despite the fact that Israel chased after their foreign gods, despite the fact that Israel broke the law of God constantly and continuously, despite that, God still says, for his own sake, for his own name, for his own reputation, because of his own faithfulness, he is nevertheless going to produce a glorious future for that people group. Again, that same very specific people group, that same people group who did break the law and did chase after other gods, that same group of people. Instead, what you see is consistently the same thing you see in the book of Hebrews, which is that whom God loves, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. But you can look all the way through the Bible and you'll never find, but those people who belong to God, who rebel, God gives up on. Instead, what you find is that he will chasten them. He will instruct them. What he will not do is lose them. Now, the common theology that I am speaking of, that's right, the flummoxing theology. That theology says, yes, now in the new covenant, because of the blood of Christ and that unconditional covenant, because of that, God will not lose anybody who's in Christ. We have perseverance of the saints, and we have eternal security, and we have election since before the foundation of the world, and so God will never lose us. But Israel, that's a whole other story, even though he refers to them as the elect in the Old Testament, even though he says to them that his promises are everlasting, and even though the Abrahamic covenant is a completely unconditional covenant and promise to the descendants of Abraham, nevertheless, for some reason, they say, God 
changed his mind. And usually when you say, why did God change his mind? Why did he turn his back on Israel? They will say, well, because Israel broke the law, chased their foreign gods, did the things that were rebellious against God. And rejected Christ. And rejected Christ. That's one that they'll say oftentimes as well. Except that the promises in the Old Testament from the prophets include, I will put my spirit in you. I will be your God. You will be my people. Zechariah says, they will look on me whom they have pierced and weep, mourn like a mother weeps over her only child. So again, the Old Testament prophets cover every one of those contingencies. What we're going to see tonight is that God is going to say again, because Isaiah says this repeatedly, that these very specific people, who he's going to identify very specifically, are given an eternal promise of future restoration and a glorious future, but God is going to punish them first. So that paradigm that we read in the book of Hebrews, that whom the Lord loves, he chastens, he doesn't lose them, he corrects them. The writer of Hebrews learned that by simply observing the Old Testament promises of God to Israel and the fact that God corrects those that he loves. What he doesn't do is lose them. And I have said this so many times that it really should be tattooed to your memory by now. The last thing you want, and this is the flummoxing part, if you were waiting to hear where the actual flummoxing begins, this is where. If you postulate a God who can change his mind after making these kind of rock-solid promises, unconditional covenants, prophetic promises of a glorious future, if he can change his mind to those people, you have no confidence that he won't change his mind about you. Because Israel is only as bad as you are. If God was to look at your track record and save you on the basis of your consistency and faithfulness to him, how are you going to fare? If you held yourself and if you held the church in the world today to the same standard that you're holding ancient Israel to, how does the church stack up? And yet, for some reason, people say, yeah, but that's different. Israel, God divorced them. He's done with them, and those promises that he made to them are all going to be fulfilled in the Gentile church of the 21st century. That confuses me because it does damage to what the text actually says. That's all introduction. By the time we get to the end of chapter 29, you're going to also say, yeah, but what about that? What about the fact that God said to those specific people, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to punish you, and then I'm going to give you this glorious future, that same glorious future that he has promised and promised and promised and promised through all of his prophets, through the entirety of the Old Testament. So consider that your introduction. Chapter 29, verse 1 says, Woe, O Ariel. That is a direct reference to Jerusalem. We know that because the second half of the sentence is where David once camped. Now, in the Hebrew language, there are no vowels. There are just a series of consonants. And so one way that you can translate the word Ariel, that L on the end is the name of God, 
And so it could be the lion of God. This could be a compliment to the city of Jerusalem that they are the lion of God, except that contextually God is correcting them in this passage. And he says in verse 2, I will bring distress to Ariel. So it's not likely that he's referring to them as the lion of God at that point. But that particular spelling of those particular consonants, read another way, can mean the hearth in front of an altar. Altar hearth. In other words, the place where the animals are slain before they're put onto the fire is the altar hearth. So God may be referring to the city of Jerusalem as the hearth where the bloodshed takes place before the sacrifice because he also says in verse 2, the last phrase is, and she, Jerusalem, shall be like an Ariel to me. So he's not saying they will be like a lion of God to me. Instead, what he seems to be saying is they are going to be a sacrifice to me. So let's put it in context. Woe to Ariel. Ariel, the city where David once camped. Add year to year. Observe your feasts on schedule. In other words, I have given you a yearly calendar of things to perform, feasts to keep to the year, to the Lord. Therefore, keep them year by year. But God seems to be indicating here that they go through these year-by-year observances, but their heart is far from him. He's going to say that later in the same chapter. So it doesn't look like God is commending them here for keeping the feasts. Instead, what he's saying is, yeah, you go ahead and keep your feasts, but that's not satisfying because your heart is not with me. Add year-to-year, observe your feasts on schedule, but I will bring distress to Ariel, and she shall be a city of lamenting and mourning, and she shall be like an Ariel to me. So God is predicting a time of trouble and distress, which, by the way, given the moment that Isaiah is saying this, he's talking about the Assyrian armies that are going to come right to the very door of Jerusalem. We've talked about this previously, that the armies of Sennacherib got to within a mile of Jerusalem. And then one night, God sent a death angel, and the angel came down and slew the entirety of the armies, and then leaving behind only stragglers who run back to their capital city, back to Nineveh, and don't attack Jerusalem. But they are right there, ready to attack, and they have already conquered the northern tribes. And so Jerusalem is in panic when God intervenes for them. That seems to be what Isaiah is describing at this moment. Because he says, and I will camp against you, encircling you, and I will set siege works against you, and I will raise up battle towers against you. So even though it's the Assyrian army that's doing it, God takes credit for it. 
So God is admitting that the northern tribes were taken into captivity into Assyria by his hand. This was God punishing his people. And then he allowed those armies of Assyria to get right on the border of Jerusalem and lay the siege works, which they did. They were preparing to siege the city when God decided to kill off the majority of the army. But when that occurs, look at verse 4. Verse 4 is about when that occurs, I'm going to break you of your pride. Judah was very arrogant. Judah saw what happened to their brethren in the north and then didn't repent, didn't change their ways, continued in their arrogant rebellion against God. And so God is going to teach them to just be quiet. Verse 4, then you shall be brought low. From the earth you shall speak and from the dust where you are prostrate, where you're on the ground. Your words shall come, and your voice shall also be like that of a spirit from the ground, and your speech shall whisper from the dust. So God is saying, I'm going to lay you low. Clearly, he's not saying, I'm going to kill you, because he says, I'm going to hear you talking. But your voice is going to be very quiet. You're going to learn to respect me. You're going to learn to speak to me in hushed tones. And in your fear, as I bring these armies to surround you, as you are sure that you are about to be destroyed, I am going to break you of your pride. But, verse 5, but the multitude of your enemies shall become like fine dust. So your enemies, the Assyrian army, are going to be outside your gates. They're going to get right to the place where they're ready to attack you and overthrow you. And in the night, in an instant, he's going to say in a moment, I'm just going to make them like the chaff that blows away in the wind. And that's exactly what happened. In a single night, the angel came into the camp of the Assyrians and killed so many of them that the rest ran back to Nineveh as fast as they, as they could go. They were like the chaff blowing away in the wind. But the multitude of your enemies shall become like fine dust. And the multitude of the ruthless ones will be like the chaff that blows away, and it shall happen instantly, suddenly. Okay, so what is God telling Jerusalem, Ariel, through Isaiah? He's saying, your enemies are coming to your door, and when they do, that's me. I'm the one bringing your enemies to your door. And then once I bring your enemies to your door, I'm going to humble you, I'm going to teach you a proper humility before me, and then I'm going to take your enemies away, which should have been adequate proof to them that God could both bring the army and defeat the army. And so they should have then turned in mass repentance to the God of Israel. They should have turned to him in faith, understanding that he was going to protect them and he was going to care for them. Because verse 6 says, from the Lord of hosts, you will be punished. Now, at this point, he seems to be speaking to the armies, the warring armies, the enemy armies, the ruthless ones who are going to blow away like the chaff. 
from the Lord of hosts, you will be punished with thunder and earthquake and loud noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a consuming fire. And then, since God is talking about the punishment that he's going to mete out on the Assyrian armies in one night, in an instant, when he's going to blow them away from the door of Jerusalem like the chaff in the wind, at that moment, suddenly Isaiah gets all eschatological. And starting at verse 7, he says, And the multitude of all the nations who wage war against Ariel, against Jerusalem, even all who wage war against her and against her stronghold, against her walls, against her city, and those who distress her, She'll be like a dream. She'll be like a vision in the night. Interesting language, considering that he wiped them out in the middle of the night. But they're going to be like a dream that passes. You wake up from it, and it's not real. It didn't exist. That's what all the multitude of all the nations who wage war against Jerusalem are going to be like. Has that happened yet? No. And so this seems to be an eschatological prophecy of the end. If you would... Turn over to Zechariah for a moment. I mentioned Zechariah a few minutes ago. Turn to Zechariah 12. Keep your finger there in Isaiah. We will be back. But I just want to show you that Zechariah predicts the same thing. How many times have you heard me say the prophets of Israel speak with one voice? They all predict the same thing. I'm going to start reading from verse 1. I'm actually interested in verse 9, but we'll get there after we read through the first eight verses. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Okay, now we know exactly who this is to. Thus declares the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, and who forms the spirit of man within the man. Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the people around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. And it will come about in that day, that phrase, in that day, that eschatological phrase that Isaiah uses so frequently. Here's Zechariah using the same phrase. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the nations, all the peoples, all the Gentiles, all who lift it, who lift that heavy stone, will be severely injured. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Okay, that hasn't happened yet. And yet it's exactly what Jesus predicted. The times when all the nations are going to surround Jerusalem. In that day, says verse 4, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment. I will strike his rider with madness. But I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, a strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. And in that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch 
among the sheaves so that they will consume on the right hand and on the left they will consume all the surrounding peoples while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. The Lord also will save the tents of Judah first in order that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not be magnified above Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And it will come about in that day that I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Does that sound exactly like what we just read out of Isaiah? This is the prediction that the nations that come against Jerusalem and come against Israel at some point, the united group of Gentile nations that come against Jerusalem are all going to be brought low, are all going to be destroyed because God is faithful to his nation Israel. But then look at verse 10 of Zechariah 12. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns over her only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. So that's exactly what I was saying to Steve earlier. That yeah, Israel, part of the guilt of Israel is that they rejected Jesus. But God is going to give them the spirit of grace and the spirit of supplication so that they will see the return of Christ and accept him and mourn over him because they're the very ones that pierced him. And they're going to see the holes in his hands and feet and the holes in his side and where the, where the crown of thorns pierced his head. And they're going to look on that pierced one. Very interesting that Zechariah would have predicted this several hundred years before Jesus was even on the planet and still Zechariah was able to identify him as the one that Israel was going to pierce. And so that meant that Jerusalem and the Jews had to reject their savior when he came. They had to crucify him, not only for the forgiveness of sins, but to fulfill the prophecy that he was going to be the one who was pierced. So again, you see the very sovereign hand of God in that. Verse 11, and in that day, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land will mourn every family by itself, and the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, by themselves, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the Shimeites by itself, and the wives by themselves, and all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. The point of all that is that every family, every tribe, every group within Judah and Israel will be mourning, will be crying over the fact of their own guilt for being the people who killed the Messiah. Okay, so God knows they were going to reject their Messiah. He already predicted it. God knows that they're the ones who break the law. He predicted it when he gave them the law and said, now when you don't do it, this is what I'm going to do to you. 
He knows they're the ones who were going to go chase after foreign gods. He knows they're going to be rebellious and stiff-necked. He knows all that about them. And nevertheless, back in Isaiah 29, he's going to reaffirm to them the glorious future that he has always promised them ever since he made the unconditional covenant with Abraham. Why? Because God is really, really faithful. And that is exactly how you want God to be. You don't want to find evidence anywhere that God turns his back on any of his promises or that he can make specific promises to specific people and then say, never mind, I didn't know you'd be like this. If he's sovereign, then he knows all that. He knows you're going to be like this. And he loved you anyway. And if you're going to claim that love for yourself, you equally have to admit that love for Israel. Because the same Bible that claims that love for you continually claims it for Israel. And you can't change that. Okay, so we're back in Isaiah 29. And the multitude of all the nations, this is verse 7, and the multitude of all the nations who wage war against Ariel, even all who wage war against her and her stronghold and who distress her shall be like a dream, a vision in the night. Verse 8 is actually amusing because God now decides to talk a little bit about empty dreams. It will be as when a hungry man dreams. And behold, he's eating in his dream. And when he awakens, his hunger is not satisfied. Or it's like a man who is thirsty, and behold, he's drinking in his dream. And when he awakens, behold, he's still faint, and his thirst is not quenched. Thus the multitude of all the nations shall be. They might have that dream of throwing Israel into the sea, as we've heard recently in the saber rattling that comes out of Iran, how they're going to bomb Israel off the planet and drive it into the sea. That might be their dream. But when they wake up from that dream, they're going to find out that they can't overthrow God and they're not going to come away satisfied. That was just their pipe dream. And thus, the multitude of all the nations shall be who wage war against Mount Zion. Okay, who's Mount Zion? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. What's the city where David dwelt? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. What's Ariel? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Who is this prophecy about? Israel. It's about Israel and Jerusalem. It's very, very specific to a very, very specific people in a very, very specific city that is in a very, very specific part of the world. It's very physical, it's very geographic, and it's very specific. Does it have to happen? Yeah, absolutely. Has it happened yet? No. And yet, because this is the very word of God, it has to occur. And it has to occur this way. It has to occur like this. And therefore, the flummoxing theology and eschatology that says God's given up on Israel negates the very thing we're reading, negates the word of God, and ignores it in favor of some kind of completely allegorized reading of the Bible that says, me, it's all about me. God is really pleased with me. But those Israelites and that stuff in the Old Testament, he got over that. He didn't really mean that. 
Okay, let's keep reading. In verse 9, he is now speaking to Israel and Judah because he knows that they know the covenants, the promises. They have the prophets. He knows all that, and he has just promised them that he's going to completely confound the nations that come against Mount Zion. So he speaks to them and says, be delayed and wait. So far he's told them, be quiet. And now he said, wait, I'm going to do it. I just haven't done it yet. So be delayed and wait. But then really interesting, blind yourselves and be blind. They become drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not because of strong drink. For the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep, a spirit of slumber, and he has shut your eyes, the prophets, and he has covered your heads, the seers. Okay, so what is God saying here? He's saying, wait for it. It is going to happen. Everything I have promised you is going to happen, but you're not going to comprehend it for now. He's going to go deeper into their lack of comprehension in just a moment. But God is going to pour on them a spirit of slumber, a spirit of sleep, so that they don't get it, so that they don't understand it, so that when Jesus comes to the planet, they will be the very people who do crucify him, who do pierce him in order to satisfy the prophecy that is already laid out. That's why Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. That phrase, the law and the prophets, means the whole of the Old Testament. I didn't come to destroy it. He says, I came to fulfill it. Even as he was hanging on the cross, even as he was being pierced, he was busy fulfilling what the law and the prophets had said. That's why when people didn't understand it, he would say, how do you not understand what God has said to you? That's why after his resurrection, as he was walking with the two disciples, as he was walking with them and talking. And then we read that he opened to them the scriptures and showed them all the parts of the scriptures, the Old Testament, that concerned him. It was all in there. All those predictions, all these prophecies about him were already there. And then he came to the planet and he fulfilled them. Had he come to the planet and Jerusalem and the Jews had the ability to recognize him as the very son of God, they would never have killed him. Instead, they would have worshipped him, they would have made him king, but they wouldn't have killed him. That's the very son of God. And he went about doing good and doing miracles like nobody had ever seen ever, and despite that, they killed him. And despite the fact that he was nothing but good and never sinful, they killed him, and they nailed him to a cross between a couple of malefactors. Why? Because they were blind, because they couldn't see it, because they couldn't get it. By the way, this is the prediction that Isaiah makes, but turn over to Romans 11 for a moment. Romans 11, we're interested mostly in verse 8 here, but really I'm going to start reading from verse 7. What then? That which Israel is seeking for, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it. And the rest were hardened. 
Where does Paul get that? Well, because he knows his Old Testament prophecy. He knows that that's the very thing that God has said, that he was going to blind and harden the eyes and the hearts of Israel so that when the Son of God came to the planet, he would come to his own and his own would receive him not. Look at verse 8. He now quotes from exactly what we just read out of Isaiah. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. So Paul is saying in the very moment as he's writing this, even as Jesus has come to the planet, died, resurrected, sailed off into the blue, sitting at the right hand of God, there were still Jews who didn't see it, didn't get it, couldn't understand it. Paul says it's because Isaiah already told you that God was going to put a spirit of stupor, a spirit of blindness on them so that they wouldn't understand it, so that they wouldn't get it. And then he follows that up by saying, David also said that. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them and let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I say then, they did not stumble so as to completely fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them, the Jews, jealous. Now, if their transgression be the riches for the world, for the Gentiles, and their failure be the riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Why is Paul talking like that? Well, because he knows the very things we're reading right now in Isaiah, and he just quoted from the very chapter of Isaiah we're reading, which is going to conclude with this glorious future for Israel. And so Paul is being very, very scripturally accurate when he says they are going to be restored. They are going to be fulfilled. And how glorious is that fulfillment going to be considering that their blindness that God put on them resulted in the salvation of Gentiles. Glorious future. But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles inasmuch then that I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen, the Jews, and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? A national resurrection. Isaiah calls it a nation born in a day. Just instantaneous. God pours out his spirit on them. They recognize him whom they have pierced. And they are as a nation born again. Back to Isaiah. Isaiah 29, the Lord has poured out over you a spirit of deep sleep, and he has shut your eyes. The prophet's eyes aren't going to understand, aren't going to see it. And he's covered your heads. The seers are not going to get it. They're not going to understand it. And the entire vision shall be to you like the words of a sealed book. Uh, he's talking about a sealed scroll. So he says that entire vision of God blinding Israel is going to be so misunderstood by Israel that it's going to be like a sealed book, which when they give it to the one who is literate, 
saying, please read this, he will say, I cannot, because it's sealed. I can't read a sealed book. So then they'll give it to someone who is illiterate and say, please read this. And he will say, I cannot read. So God is saying, this prophecy right here in Isaiah, which is repeated by all the Old Testament prophets, this prophecy of God punishing Israel and then punishing the foreign nations and then restoring Israel, this promise of God sending his own son for the restoration and for the healing of the nation of Israel, and then blessings coming to Israel that pour out to the Gentile nations, all that prophecy, he says, is like a sealed scroll that people just aren't going to be able to see. They're not going to be able to read it. They're not going to be able to understand it when it's right there in front of them. They say, yeah, I see it. I just can't read it. And they're all going to have a reason. Either I can't read or, well, it's sealed. I can't, I can't read it. And yet it's right there in front of them, the same way that the Old Testament is right there in front of us. And I would argue that the people who are still promoting the flummoxing theology, how many times have I used that word tonight? The people who are promoting that theology are still looking at it like a sealed book because they read it in the Old Testament and they go, well, it can't mean that. It can't possibly mean that. Too many years have passed. Too many things have happened. They've been scattered for too long. So it can't mean that. So therefore, I will give it some other meaning to try to save God's reputation and save face for God. And I'll, I'll, I'll say it was fulfilled, but in some hyper-spiritualized way. So God says he's going to seal the book. Verse 13. Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near to me, with their words, and they honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far away from me, and their reverence for me consists of traditions learned by rote. That's why earlier when he was saying, keep the feasts year by year, do your feasts, but I'm still going to make you mourn. I'm still going to punish you. In context of this chapter, God is saying to them, you do all the religious stuff. You say the words. You keep the traditions that you've heard from your fathers. But your heart's not with me. I don't care how many sheep you kill for me. I don't care how many oxen. I don't care how many feasts you keep. I don't care how many religious things you do for me. If your heart is not with me, those are just empty practices. Should we apply that? Because there are a lot of people do this very day who just kind of do it by rote. In fact, and I don't want to get off course here, but I'm going to just slightly, since the advent of COVID, and all church services collectively going online. I'm the kind of curious person who will actually look at those services to see what kind of views they're getting. And there are some very big churches that I can name and that I've even attended where there were thousands of people showing up on Sundays where now that they're online, they get like 23 views. And you go, well, where are these people? Were they just showing up at church out of rote habit? Because once they had to put some effort in, 
to actually learn week by week, to feed their souls, to hear the word of God. Once it became convenient, they don't even have to get out of their pajamas or leave their house, and they can watch it or not watch it, and nobody will ever know. Where'd those people go? They're just, they're just not there. They're just gone. That's kind of fascinating to me. That is God, I think, shaking out the church and demonstrating that he knows how to uh, separate the truly devoted, spirit-filled from those who were just by rote doing the kind of thing you do. Okay, well, that's the same thing that God is saying here to Israel. They just by habit, by rote, do all the religious stuff, but their heart's not in it. They're not devoted to me. Because this people draw near with their words, and they honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition, learned, and then the next two words in the NASB are added by the translators. It says learned by rote or learned through repetition. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelously. Those are not good words in this context, just so you know. He's not saying, I'm going to do something wonderful for you. <clears throat> Steve and I just had a conversation after church on Sunday where we were talking about the abuse of really good words. Like the word awesome means to be struck with awe, to be overwhelmed by the magnificence of something. And that's a word that I heard on a commercial recently advertising a hot dog. It was an awesome dog. Awesome hot dog. And I think, boy, that's a real abuse of a word. <laughs> then again, it depends on the hot dog. It might be a, a hot dog that inspires awe. You can't eat it. You, you just have to fall down before it. And that's on you. You started that. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous. Remember, this is the same God who already put them in the Egyptian captivity for 400 years. And he said, I'm going to do something like that again. And it's going to be marvelous. It's going to be something that makes them marvel, makes them wonder, makes them look at it and think, this can only be God. Wondrously marvelous. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be concealed. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord, and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, who sees us? Or who knows us? You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That which is made, will it say to its maker, he did not make me? Or what is formed, will it say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. He has no comprehension. He has no idea how to make somebody like me. I mean, if that sounds familiar to you, turn to Romans 9. Because Paul picks up that same theology. And where did he get it? He got it from passages like Isaiah 29 and the fact that God took Jeremiah to the potter's house in order to demonstrate 
that God could do whatever he wants with Israel because Israel was formed by him. They belong to him, and he can do whatever he wants with them. Romans 9, we're going to start reading at verse 19. You will say to me then, we have talked about this a lot. You will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience the vessels of wrath that were prepared for destruction? And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Okay, so that same idea of God can do whatever he wants with what's his, and everybody is his, and therefore he forms, he fashions, he makes everybody who exists, and therefore he can do whatever he wants with everybody. And even though they think they can hide their plans from him, even though they think they can hide their deeds away from him, and will say, you know, who sees us? God is declaring, I not only see you, I made you, and you've got it all backwards. You've got the cart before the horse. The fact is, you have things turned around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay that what is made should say to its maker, he did not make me? Or what is formed will say to him who formed it, he has no understanding? Okay, so up until this point in the chapter, all we've seen is bad news, bad news, bad news for Jerusalem. God has every right at this point to leave them in the blindness he's putting on them. He has every right to bring the armies of the Assyrians against them and wipe them out completely. He has them dead to rights in their sin and their guilt. And so he has every right, if he wants, to wipe them out. But he's just said, I can do whatever I want with what's mine. I'm the sovereign one. I do whatever I want to do. And nobody gets to ask me what I'm doing. Nobody gets to stop my hand or say, what are you up to? Nobody gets to talk back to me. And so this is what he promises, starting at verse 17. Is it not yet just a little while before Lebanon will be turned into a fertile field and the fertile field will be considered like a forest? Okay, God is starting to pronounce blessings on the very land that he has just condemned. By the way, in eschatological circles, some people make a great deal out of the time-sensitive words in the New Testament and in the book of Revelation. And they say things like, behold, I'm coming soon. See, that's proof he came in 70 AD. Or it says, I come quickly. Or what about that? Well, here's Isaiah saying, God speaking through Isaiah, isn't it just a little while? before Lebanon is going to blossom? Okay, he said that 2,700 years ago, and it hasn't happened yet. So from God's perspective, that couple thousand years is just a little while. It's just a little while. Just, just wait. Remember what he said to them. Just be quiet. Just wait. It's going to happen. Just wait. 
Lebanon is going to be turned into a fertile field. The fertile field is going to be like a forest. And on that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom, out of their darkness, out of that sadness that he said he's going to bring them to, out of that blindness that he's going to produce to them, out of their gloom, out of their darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. Now, granted, when Jesus was on the planet, he actually did give eyes that could see to blind men. But contextually here, earlier in the same chapter, God said, I'm going to blind them. So he's talking about a spiritual blindness that he puts on Israel. And here he says, from that gloom and darkness, he's going to deliver them. And the eyes of the blind are going to see. So Israel is going to be able to see. They're going to be able to comprehend. They're going to get spiritual eyes, spiritual understanding. The afflicted also shall increase their gladness in the Lord. And the needy of mankind shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless will come to an end, and the scorner will be finished. And indeed, all who are intent on doing evil will be cut off. Has that happened yet? No. No, there's still plenty of people on the planet doing plenty of evil, usually by executive order. I don't know if that's going to make it to the internet. I just thought I'd put it out there. The ruthless will come to an end, and the scorner will be finished. And indeed, all who are intent on doing evil will be cut off, who cause a person to be indicted by a word, and ensnare him who adjudicates at the gate, and defraud the ones in the right, and defraud them with meaningless arguments. Why does that sound familiar? All three aspects of that. Number one, they indict a person with just a claim. All it takes is a word. By the way, this is why the law says that a man can only be charged by two or three witnesses. But just a word? You can indict somebody. Well, that's going on to this very day. Who ensnare him who adjudicates at the gate. The judges of Israel would sit in the gate and they would adjudicate between people who had disagreements with each other. But evil people want to ensnare him, want to trap him, want to give him a bribe so that he will adjudicate the way they want him to adjudicate. And they will defraud the one who is actually right, the one who is actually correct, and they will defraud them with meaningless arguments. How political would you like me to make that phrase for you? Because the truth is that when people say, Abortion is murder. They're right. Amen. According to the word of God, they're right. When people reading the word of God say marriage is one man, one woman for life, that's what marriage is. They're right. There are so many examples I can think of where the word of God is right and we say that it's right and then the society pushes against us with completely meaningless arguments. Like, well, you wouldn't want to upset them. They might feel bad about themselves and have lower self-esteem if you point out that they're not right. Or they'll try to make some empty argument that God doesn't exist. Because after all, natural selection, which is truly a meaningless argument. So God promises that he's going to make an end to those kinds of people 
Verse 22, therefore, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham? And this is what he says concerning the house of Jacob. Who's the house of Jacob? Israel. Israel including the northern ten tribes who are currently scattered at this very moment. This is what God, who redeemed Abraham, he's pointing out the Abrahamic covenant, the unconditionality of the promises that were made to Abraham that include spiritual promises and land promises and very physical promises. Therefore, says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed nor shall his face now turn pale. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. Indeed, they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe, genuine awesomeness, genuine awe, they will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Who's going to stand in awe of the God of Israel? The house of Jacob. That's who the promise is to. And those who err in mind will know the truth. Okay, so why has Israel been rejecting Yahweh? Why have they been not keeping his law? Why have they chased after other gods? Well, because they're in error. They're thinking wrong. They're erring in their minds. They've been blinded by God. They're making, truly making, genuinely guilty of all the mistakes that people accuse them of. It's all true. But God says those who do err in their mind, still within the context of the house of Israel, the house of Jacob, those who err in their mind will know the truth. That's a rock-solid promise from God right there. Those who err in mind will know the truth. How does that happen? Have you ever erred in your mind? Was there ever a time when you were not a Christian? Was there, don't give me that, Tom gave me. If you were a sinful, fleshly, self-absorbed human being walking through your life doing what you wanted and satiating your flesh, and then God interrupted you, and then God introduced himself to you and brought you to a knowledge of himself, then he made up for the fact that you were erring in your mind so that you would know the truth. He did it for you. Here he says he's doing it for Israel. Does that mean he's going to do it for Israel? It has to mean that. It can't mean anything else. By the way, the church has never been and is never called in the Bible the house of Jacob. The house of Jacob is very specific nomenclature that is speaking of a very specific group of people. And we know exactly who they are. Those who err in their mind will know the truth. And those who criticize will accept instruction. Those who criticized the Bible, the word of God, the way of God, the following of Jesus. Those who criticize the way of holiness, the way of righteousness. They're going to be made to accept instruction. So that they can be instructed in the ways of God. And their mind full of errors is going to be changed so that they can learn and accept the truth. The same thing that you went through, the same experience that you've had, that every Christian has had, is the same experience that is promised to national Israel. Just hasn't happened yet. 
But if it doesn't happen, we have to say the Bible's not true. Got it? Got it. Pretty good chapter, eh? Yes. It's awesome. Was that you? Take her out back. And, yeah, it is. It's awesome. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the word and study the sovereign grace of God.